We're back with season two of the Humans of Learning Sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Monlin Monica Cope. I'm excited to announce that we'll be shaking things up a bit this season. Each episode of season two will feature two guests who work in similar spaces, but have unique perspectives on what it means to design for and support learning. Similar to last season, we'll get to hear the nitty gritty stories about the different journeys that have led them to where they are today, as well as how their thinking has shifted along the way. Here's a quick sneak peek. We talk to folks about research practitioner partnerships, civics education, collaborative learning, and so much more. I can't wait to hear about what you learn from these episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at humanslspod or email us at humanslspod at gmail.com. If you've ever been part of a team, you no doubt have had experiences with successful and not so successful collaborations. What makes collaborations fruitful and why and when do they sometimes stall or dead end? Our field has been grappling with these questions for quite some time, both in virtual and in-person learning environments. Collaborations typically involve two or more learners who come together to jointly analyze problems or develop a plan and solution to address it. But my guests today want to problematize this straightforward notion of collaboration and push us to think about collaboration not just as a process by which young people construct disciplinary ideas, but as a situated process in which students exercise agency, navigate and even shift power dynamics, and negotiate their social and intellectual authority. My guests today are Drs. Jennifer Langer Osuna and Carlin Adams Wiggins. Jenny is an associate professor at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University, and Carlin is an associate professor of applied developmental psychology at Portland State University. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny and Carlin. Thank you. Thanks. I want to start us off by um, sort of retracing how you got here. Both of you engage in work that examines identity, agency, and authority at play when young people are working together in small groups. And Jenny, you do this work mostly in math classrooms. And Carlin, you work in both science classrooms and also out-of-school contexts. So can you start us off by retracing the journey of how you got here? For me, it actually came about by accident. Um, So I entered my doctoral program directly from undergraduate study in psychology, and I had planned to continue working um, on motivation research, applying achievement goal theory. Um, So from there, I had expected motivation research to help me intervene on racial inequities in uh, K-12 schools. Um, by helping students enjoy learning, you know, make school somewhere they actually wanted to be. Um, And I had also expected that research to support students of color from working class and poor backgrounds who were questioning their abilities in undergraduate settings, um, specifically when they were severely underrepresented. Um, That being said, (laughs) between uh, the time I was graduating college and entering doctoral study, which was around 2008, 2009, Um, I had some pretty major shifts in my own understanding of the nature of the problems at hand, Um, and I also became more interested in histories of Black political struggle around the world. Um, I had started kind of realizing that if, after I had enrolled in graduate school, that if I wanted um, to integrate my new perspective with the work that I was doing, I was going to have to work pretty hard to make that happen. Um, And a couple things did help me see room for abridging. Um, So the first, um, I hadn't been exposed to video recorded observational research prior to graduate school. So I was thoroughly interested in that the first chance I had an opportunity to do it. Um, 
and what I was seeing inside the groups uh, with this classroom video was intriguing and exciting. The power dynamics aspect leaped out at me immediately. So it wasn't that much of a leap for me to start being more interested in that over the questionnaire-based research I had been doing as an undergraduate. And then the second piece was the Occupy Wall Street movement was actually picking up around the time, um, the early stage of my grad school time. Um, so I saw local chapters right around me evolving, and I had other activist experience um, prior to that. And then the, the icing on the cake was just, you know, the the obvious, <laughs> my undergraduate experience with status hierarchies based on race that would show up anytime we had to do group work. <laughs> so that being said, I noticed across all four of those that there seemed to be an officially non-hierarchical and in, in some cases explicitly stated horizontal structure to the groups. But in actuality, the functioning of these groups uh, almost across the board consistently seem to involve unofficial hierarchies. Um, and specific people, and I, like, I have no better way to say this, uh, seem to magically always wind up being the official source of decision making. So um, th those hierarchies were particularly salient at times of decision making and when conflicts arose. Um, so for me, understanding productive collaboration is, as a general human activity has just been extremely interesting overall. And I think um, it has lots of potentially impactful practical applications beyond the classrooms. After listening to Carlin, I realized like we actually have some similar um, threads to our story. So. I, I also kind of came into it by by accident and, and went to uh, graduate school straight out of undergraduate also in psychology. And my very first entry into this world was through very classic cognitive psychology research on human problem solving back when I was an undergraduate at Carnegie Mellon. And I had joined this research lab that was like very open and encouraging of undergraduate research assistants. And so I really went in there like just with a stance of, you know, kind of intellectual curiosity and, and, and a kind of like academic nerdiness, really. And I had a lot of fun in that lab. And I knew I wanted to go into research and become a professor. Um, and at the time, um, moving into into graduate work, um, in the world of education research, which is kind of where I ended up focusing these, these curiosities, was that, um, there were these reform efforts going on towards problem-based teaching and mathematics and cooperative and collaborative problem solving. And so I jumped into that world, like still with this cognitive lens of like, how do we make schools better and learning more rich? Like just kind of those, those early questions. But of course, like once I was spending a lot of time in classrooms rather than in like the lab where we just kind of bring in people, uh, and I had that young kind of researcher hat on uh, during graduate school, and you can't help but notice that like the very things that this world of research was ignoring as essentially kind of like noise in the data, right? The ways in which the students were in the unofficial spaces of the classroom, like so clearly seeking recognition from peers to be seen, to be liked, to be esteemed, the ways in which they were guarding themselves, you know, from teachers or from others, like those things where you're seeing students like passing notes or 
you know, trying to be heard or like really avoiding socialization or, you know, kind of starting to dominate or trying to get attention. Like these were so clearly the center of classroom life. And when you put kids in groups, like so central to what was happening in their collaborative activities around seeking attention and around status and around power. And I saw that this was not only like really being ignored in the literature of collaboration, collaborative problem solving, but it was like so central to understanding these processes. Um, and I had also experienced some very stark moments in the classrooms that I was observing. There was a particular student who I was in these, I was in these different classrooms because of different projects. And it happened to be that there was a particular student, this African-American boy who was in the one kind of general classroom and had been having interactions with the teacher that were so clearly racialized. And then I happened to also be in a special education classroom. And one Monday he shows up in that classroom and he had been moved to it. And I just, you know, when, with all of these things kind of going on, I was just um, realizing that the cognitive approach to understanding classroom life, let alone the interactions happening in the classroom and how learning happens, was just not going to get us to where we needed to be. Um, and I think that it also took me to my own experiences um, in the math department as an undergraduate, especially around group work, where it so clearly was gendered and racialized. I didn't have language for it. Um, and I just, I left the math department. And intuitively, like we know that students are not cognitive robots in the class, but we treat them as if they are for the sake of research. And it really derails possibilities for, for truly good classroom design and professional development and instruction. And so um, that was kind of my a set of experiences that led me to really want to focus on questions of the relational and in the possibilities of collaboration, of dialogue, of recognition. That's kind of like how I fell into this, into this area. Oh, I love both of those journeys um, because it feels like there was some sort of problematizing of the existing literature coming out of psychology and the lived realities of students in schools, which are so complex and varied and who they are in one classroom or in one space could be totally different in another. And so trying to understand that, I feel like the scholarship that both of you all do really tries to bring in um, the full student for who they are, um, not just the kind of knowledge that they're trying to construct in a space. And this leads right to my next question. And just as a background for the listeners, I always ask um, interviewees to share work with me, both what motivates your work and also your own scholarship. And one thing that I was noticing across papers and chapters that you sent me was this idea that we really need to think about students um, working in collaborative um, settings, not just as an epistemic endeavor and trying to understand what knowledge they're building, whether that's science or math content, but as an ontological process um, that helps tune us into who they are, who they're trying to become, and the kind of futures that they're trying to create. And um, I was also noticing that both of you work alongside and with non-dominant youth um, and students of color. So I wanted to ask, why is it so important that we consider the ontological and the epistemological in relation to each other? Or said differently, what do we miss if we treat collaboration just as an endeavor to build knowledge together? Ontology asks questions of being and becoming. You know, what does it mean to be a kind of person in this space? How do we become 
um, good students or good young mathematicians or people who want to and know how to learn at school. It asks questions about recognition, you know, who or, or what kind of person is recognized in this space, who gets to be desirable or good, who becomes undesirable or in, inappropriate? How does recognition function here? And so these are the, some of the questions posed from the lens of ontology and that need to be recognized for who one is and who one is becoming. And to have that recognition include the feeling of being seen and heard and esteemed. These are fundamental human needs. They're not like these fluffy extras that, you know, we could bring in if the content learning is, you know, solid, right? So to ignore the ontological in questions of schooling and focus only on what supports like the technical acquisition of content knowledge, I think is to risk approaches to learning that inadvertently distort or devalue the learner. And it doesn't need to be that way. We can bring these twin goals of the acquiring of knowledge and the um, these questions of recognition and, and these questions of identity formation into classroom design. And this is especially true for students of color because students of color are subjected to these societal ideologies that distort them from the start. It's harder to be seen and heard for who you are and can become if there are these distorting ideologies that fundamentally get in the way. And in particular with students of color, you know, racism is a fundamental kind of organizing ideology. So these are questions of distortion um, at the very beginning of asking these questions of recognition. And they're not the only distorting ideologies that get in the way. You know, there are ideologies of sexism and of homophobia and of transphobia and of ableism that distort how people are seen and heard. And so it's important and understandable that the scholars who are looking at questions of identity formation and of recognition are really focused on marginalized identities. What about for you, Carlin? I like the points that you were making there, Jenny. I think that this is a huge, <laughs> huge area to pay attention to. Um, and really, I, I love the fact that sociocultural theories of learning are so helpful for understanding uh, why um, these things matter. You know, um, I, I think like, you know, just talking to students, it can be helpful to be able to point to those theories to be like, okay, here's the intro. Um, but yeah, so to me specifically, when you ask a person to understand the world in a given way, you know, you're even if you're asking that person to um, understand things in some kind of way that has some arguably objective character to it, you are indeed asking that person to become a particular kind of person. So, you know, to me, that immediately raises two questions. First, does the learning context impose other unnecessary demands of change to one's ways of being and one's ways of knowing as a criterion for ascribing competence to the people involved? And second, uh, how does that bundling or turning it into a package deal of sorts correspond to broader social structures of oppression? Um, so my understanding is that typically when that package deal is happening, it's done mostly implicitly, leaves students feeling individually responsible for not being smart enough, and then it's treated as a legitimate process through the ideology of meritocracy. So, well, you didn't get it. You're not smart enough. It's because you're not good enough. You should have just tried harder. <laughs> There's nothing that could be wrong with the context, right? Um, so for students of color in particular, um, and especially those coming from economically marginalized backgrounds, um, it creates this bind of having to first name what's even happening to you. <laughs> you know, so it's like, 
it's being made invisible, but then you've got to be able to say that it happened first. Not only do you have to say that it happened, though, you now have to convince everyone else that it happened. Um, so no, it's not just that, you know, oh, they, they skipped over what you contributed. They skip over the other person, too, you know. In addition to having to convince other people, you also are put in the lovely extra bind of having to decide how are you going to deal with the material and economic consequences of being deemed someone who lacks sufficient merit to deserve basic human decency in the broader society. It plays out a particular way in the classroom, but, you know, these things have consequences. If you're systematically, repeatedly labeled lacking merit academically, that has implications for your job prospects in the future. It has implications for all kinds of other outcomes down the line. Um, so that being said, you know, you can stack on top of that the fact that, and I think Jenny already, you know, pointed to this, you know, you stack on top of that the fact that the ideology of meritocracy is applied at the collective level to groups like, say, Black people, um, you know, it, it just raises the question, you know, like, do we realize just how much of a bind you're asking these students to navigate on their own? Um, so to me, it, you know, there's clearly room to push back on that. Um, but I find it profoundly unethical and unacceptable to leave students shouldering that uh, burden on their own without any help demystifying the process. I, I was just going to say one thing that you, way you phrased it in terms of having to convince others that this thing that has been normalized and invisibilized is really happening to you. So you were saying that I was thinking, you know, that's gaslighting and that's an abuse tactic. And it's hard enough when it's an individual to notice the gaslighting and prove it to others, let alone if it's happening in this collective, very distributed sense. So it kind of really struck me when you, when you said it that way, and I agree with the, the unethical notion of having young people shoulder that it kind of struck me that way I'm like yeah that that sounds like <laughs> collective gaslighting and it is strongly agree to me that that's the power of the work that you both do is you give us vocabulary I think um, you help give us some language to call out those inequities as they surface in classroom collaborations, right? Um, we can't think about student collaborations divorced from the larger society and schooling practices, right? Um, so it, it helps us sort of index the existing harms and inequalities that pervade our society. But I think by naming that, it also gives us an opportunity to think about how we can, what we could do differently. How could it be more equitable? Um, and so I guess I wanted to think a little bit in particular, Carlin, about your work um, that you recently published in Mind, Culture, and Activity. You introduced this idea of exclusion cascades as uh, as a way for us to really think about the ways in which classroom conversations and collaborations between students um, can really reflect those inequities. Um, but you also help us think about the way to sort of historicize those interactions. So can you tell us a little bit about those exclusion cascades? What are they? And what do they help us understand about student interactions and about status and hierarchy in society? Exclusion cascades are series of peer interactions inside a small group that produce a marginal position for a given group member. Um, they involve a chain of speech acts, nonverbal acts, or movement of people or objects within the physical space that are not meaningfully reducible to a smaller grain size when discussing marginality as a socially constructed identity in the science classroom. They also may have uh, micro exclusions or status negotiation processes that are embedded inside that exchange. 
So like as a little bit of a backdrop on that, my colleague and former student, <laughs> Julia Dancis and I were already exploring microgenetic processes of identity construction in science learning context. But with us both being critical developmental psychologists, we were wanting to really connect these local interactions to the cultural historical domain since that was already implicit in our understanding and, um, and the approach we take. So I think the main contribution in this paper is actually the broader framework, which directly states that this piece was uh, previously only implicit in our work. So that cultural historical aspect. Um, so conceptually, exclusion cascades most directly historicize the production of marginal identities over the course of one or more observations at the microgenetic level. But indirectly, they also historicize marginal identities by naming the cultural historical processes that we presume that they are grounded in. And in that paper, you um, you have these little vignettes of the small groups working together, and you sort of document the ways that students really nimbly work to alienate students, one another, um, across multiple turns of talk, um, even those that they perceive as being super highly influential and competent, right? We think about those as traits, like you associate certain people that you know as having this higher status. But what you show in, in those interactions is that it's actually not, it's not static, right? It gets co-constructed, it gets negotiated in these social interactions. And so I wondered if you could give us an example of um, an instance of exclusion from that work and what that's been helping you learn about youth and the way that they navigate these situations. For the purposes of this, I'm going to zoom in on group C. So for group C, there were a few overarching dynamics across the semester that we found noteworthy. So first, higher status students in the group sometimes initiated a split of the group into dyads to avoid interacting with the two low status group members. Um, this reflected the power of academic status hierarchies. Second, the lower status members of this group were still able to weaponize broader societal status hierarchies um, uh, to influence group interactions. So, for example, one of the lower status group members got into an extended, unsolicited discussion of another group member's racial identity and also invoked a model minority stereotype to rationalize letting a higher status student provide answers to the group instead of working together to identify a solution. That same lower status group member turned the academic and peer status hierarchies against their dyadic partner, who was also low status, to bolster his own position inside the group. Youth can and do navigate uh, learning tasks through the lens of power, identity construction, and the pursuit of goals that seem otherwise unrelated to learning. <laughs> uh, but much of this is happening during periods that are at least nominally off task. Um, so researchers may inadvertently skip over this in their own analyses. At the end of the semester, forms of exclusion that we're seeing in video are talked about by the students as if they were actually consequential for them in terms of their on-task contributions as well. I, I think like a kind of a little bit of a take home there is just that it's uh, those periods are enmeshed with each other and that the in the exclusionary interactions that are happening across the entirety of the collaboration all are playing a role. If these interactions are examined with insufficient attention to the cultural historical processes, some of the interpretive power, I think, is going to get lost uh, in the analysis and a good bit of the practical relevance for social change becomes harder to identify. 
So I think one would come to a very different conclusion about, well, how should we address marginal identities in the science classroom if, if I continue to not name that cultural historical backdrop for the microgenetic processes that are happening? And Jenny, you've been doing a lot of work to bring nuance to what is considered off-task activities, right? And in particular, I'm thinking about the paper in the Journal of Educational Psychology that you published in 2020. Um, I was really taken by the ways that you were sort of naming the types of off-task activity. Um, and of course, uh, as Carlin was saying, a lot of researchers and even teachers dismiss these behaviors as being inconsequential to learning, uninteresting and unproductive. But what your work does is sort of highlight the important functions of these episodes in supporting collaboration. So um, tell us a little bit about that paper and how how you became interested in um, bringing nuance to those moments and what you've been learning by sort of characterizing those types of interactions. In some ways, the interest in off-task interactions had been kind of primed for me from previous work before I got into this article, but this article has a cool origin story. But there's been some other work, like a, a, a paper with um, Indigo Esmond uh, that looked at um, a particular a group of, of high schoolers where off-task talk was really important in resisting some um, forms of domination that were going on there. And um, another paper that came out of my dissertation where um, some of the ways in which off-task conversations ended up really being very important for a student's um, kind of identity trajectory in the classroom. But this, so, so that was like kind of in the background of my, of my mind, but this article has kind of a, a cool origin story. And it began with a group of elementary school teachers that were connected to our teacher education program um, that I teach in reaching out to me about, about the work that our teacher candidates were doing in their classroom. Uh, they were implementing these collaborative math units as 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 uh, student teachers, and it reminded the classroom teachers of what they were doing with like the readers and writers workshop in in literacy, um, where it's collaborative and it's student led, and they wanted support on how to do this kind of work themselves with math in their classrooms. And from there, uh, we created a study where we supported uh, these teachers in implementing these collaborative um, inquiry math units. And then we would videotape their classrooms and then have the opportunity to kind of analyze what was really going on. And one of the key ways that we supported teachers was by bringing in video clips, uh, very short clips of their students engaging in these collaborative tasks during group or partner work when the teacher wasn't present, right? When she's like kind of walking around from, from group to group and have them watch it and really reflect and discuss on what they noticed their students were doing to try to collaborate with one another? Like, what were these efforts? Like, what were they bringing to this work? How might the teachers build on these efforts? Where were the struggles? How might they address these struggles? And then they'd go off into their classrooms and try out things based on their insights and we'd get to follow them and, and study it. So this particular analysis kind of came from, from two sources. One was the work with these teachers where they were really getting to know from this asset lens how their students were collaborating with one another. And one of the big takeaways from their own discussions was recognizing actually like how earnest students really were in their attempts to connect with and work with their peers and how many times the social dimension of play or imagination were part of these efforts, not always harmoniously, sometimes it was in the space of struggle, but how they were kind of efforting through through these, through socialization, through play. Um, 
And so that was one of the things that was kind of in the background for us was the teachers themselves kind of noticing, oh, this seems to matter. Uh, these are th- these are things to to maybe lean back on and not get on them to to, to stop this sort of play. Um, but more specifically, we were my research team and I were working on another analysis uh, coming out of the same classroom. It was we were already kind of in finishing that up. That was attending to how students in um, group work shifted their power dynamics while they were working together, which we were kind of framing in terms of distributions of authority. And sometimes one kid would just really take over and we would call that concentrated authority. Sometimes multiple kids were contributing meaningfully and we would call that shared authority. And sometimes they were just like bidding for control and it never quite went anywhere. And we would call that contested authority. And sometimes they just weren't doing math. And we just kind of called those moments disbanded. We just just kind of labeled it that way. And we were interested in that study to see how kids discursively like got to shared authority. Like what were they saying that got them to that shared space? What derailed it? How did they come back into shared if it was derailed or if someone took over and sort of things like that? We found out kind of lots of neat things, but one of the things that we saw was that many times, this was just sort of, we sort of noticed as we were going through the analysis, um, when kids were in what we were calling disbanded, that is that they weren't doing math together exactly, something was happening because they often jumped from straight, from disbanded straight into shared authority. And we didn't think that would happen. We thought, if anything, if they were sort of like not doing math, that it would go through concentrated. There'd be somebody who says, all right, guys, like that's it, right? But that wasn't really what was happening. So we were like, okay, something's happening um, in this space of disbanded. So we kind of like poked in there and we're like, what are these video moments? And it was largely like off-task analysis, like off-task moments. And it brought us to like the teachers being like, there's something about these moments. And so we thought, okay, we want to just go and capture every moment of off-task activity and really analyze what was happening interactionally, discursively, just before they went into off-task and then just after. Uh, So we dug into um, that and lo and behold, we found that really important things were happening um, and that most of the time, um, it was supporting the collaborative dynamics. And you document four different ways that these off-task behaviors functioned. And there were sort of two large categories, things that sort of grew and perhaps sustained collaboration, and those um, that really resisted or challenged collaboration. And so can you give us an example of one type of, of this behavior and the function of that off-task behavior in connecting to sort of the moments that came right after it? Uh, I'll give an example and I'll I'll kind of ground some of our findings in that example. So here's an example of a group of three students who are working together on a math task and they're building um, two-digit numbers with 10 sticks and they each have numbers and the group together is supposed to work on one another's numbers and represent them. And at the beginning of the interaction, two of the students are sitting in ways that are like facing each other and they've got all the materials between them and they're talking to each other. And there's a third student who does not have the materials in in front of him. Um, He's not being engaged with 
And you see these efforts to like kind of slowly come in and grab some of the cubes and bring them to him. And then he sort of hesitantly puts them back and he's sort of trying to speak, but he's being ignored. And this moment was representative of a lot of these moments where we would see bids for attention or bids for contributions or bids to bring a um, another peer into the collaboration, like these, these bids that were being ignored or rejected in some way. He then shifted into off task. Well, it, it actually kind of was a moment he capitalized on because one of one of the one of the students who had uh, was in the pair with picked up a tent stick and pretended it was a sword. And the and the and the relatively marginalized student took this on. He picked up the tent the other tent stick and they start play fighting. And the marginalized student saying, hey, you Christmas tree, because it's like a green and red tent stick. Uh, I'll beat you, you Christmas tree. And they have this brief moment of play. The other, the third student kind of stops it. Um, and in, in that play, uh, their bodies become oriented as a trio, right? They're, you see physically the bodies shift. They're all now kind of in an orientation toward each other. The cubes have kind of moved. He now has access to them. And when they stop the play, he reaches in, grabs some more cubes. One student says, why don't we work on my number? And, or why don't we work on, on Mutia's number, one of the other students? And the marginalized kid says, actually, why don't we work with my number first since it's smaller? They accept this uh, and they start building his um, th that number all together. And now they are all three of them in the collaboration. And we also saw kind of two interesting things that were also kind of representative of, of this moment in the in the broader data. One is that the bids that failed through on-task efforts were successful in off-task efforts. So trying to get attention and um, couldn't quite get the attention through the task, but was able to get the attention through the sword play. You see other moments, uh, a student who's really trying to like recruit, 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 and isn't able to shifts to conversation about Minecraft. You see all their bodies shift. They're now looking at this student. Um, and in that moment, he goes and does his mathematical contribution. It's taken up and, and, the, and the collaboration continues. So that was one interesting thing that we saw over and over again, that it was the same kinds of bids that were failing on task were successful off task. Um, and secondly, that the narratives at play that were successful were narratives where the marginalized student had social power. So he was like a powerful swordsman, or he's like the guy on Minecraft uh, riding a, a, a horse burning down a village, right? But there were some narratives, the, one, the ones that weren't successful in shifting the dynamics were ones where the play, where the, the marginalized student's character in the play was not particularly powerful. For example, there was one where the student was playing as a noodle server and it never quite shifted the dynamics. So we kind of theorized that when students are not able to position themselves powerfully in these academic kind of on-task mathematical hierarchies of the task, they can shift into social narratives through play where they are relatively powerful and it functions. Uh, to 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 change the dynamics and they switch back into on on task. So that's what we found in in that study, and it we we interpret it as you know these positions of power and these social hierarchies are are constantly kind of occurring, and the off task space is a space of possible 
different social hierarchies that students can really creatively and flexibly utilize to navigate uh, dynamics. And when that space is wholly closed off, students are forced to try to keep navigating that very narrow, um, you know, kind of social hierarchy of the academic space and might not be as successful. We work with a, a lot of teachers around video analysis of student interactions. And it just makes me think about the new lens that we want to nurture with teachers. We're seeing these moments as being moments of ingenuity and really brilliance in how students navigate this with their full selves, knowing the ways that they're being positioned by other people, perceiving that, and then responding in a way that sort of turns it on its head and says, you know, I have this other toolkit of stuff that I can use to get into this conversation, right? So I'm curious, you know, for the both of you, in terms of thinking about teacher learning and how teachers come to see students and students in collaboration, what might it look like for them to develop this other lens for seeing those moments that they might deem as unproductive, inconsequential to the work that they want students to be doing? What might that look like? What would it take for, for teachers to become more attuned to those moments? The thing I would put forward as like a, a, a starting point to maybe help teachers also feel kind of good about this is I think it's generally hard to identify the difference between on and off task. You know, like that in and of itself is very difficult. And often it's kind of like, well, is it or isn't it? Um, it, it, it to the point of where often in my own work, I'm like, well, this is nominally off task. <laughs> I think in some ways, um, perhaps the most important part is to kind of help teachers see that in many in many cases the things that seem like they're going nowhere uh or seem like oh we gotta you know get them back to task you often can't really know where it's headed based on just your immediate observation you really do need to give it at least a little bit of time to kind of see what's what's coming out of it i think that's probably the main thing i would say i'll make one specific example of that part around give it some time how do you know as a teacher when to lean back and kind of just let it let it be and, and note that maybe some important social processes are going on there and when to step in and intervene that maybe the off-task work has off-task activity has become genuinely like unproductive. And what we found was that it was time. So these moments were very, very fleeting. They were like under 30 seconds, under 15 seconds. The minute mark was kind of that mark where if it was going on for over a minute that they're really like engaged in play and not doing work, then it might be worth stepping in and seeing like, you know, what supports might they need. In a broader sense, I think that what I've found in working with teachers is a stance of curiosity around their students and what their students are doing in the classroom and the building of an asset lens. What is fascinating about my students thinking, what are they doing to engage one another? You know, what, what, what are students kind of bringing into this space is really very powerful. This is where teachers that we've worked with have um, come to recognize the genuine earnestness of students' um, efforts in the classrooms. Also, what gets in the way of their efforts and um, what teachers can build on. So I, I think that part around like 
a stance of curiosity and the development of this asset focused lens helps to really humanize that space. And um, I think that's one of the most powerful approaches to working with teachers is to give them in some ways like the permission and the tools to notice the the efforts, the earnestness, the um, creativity, the ingenuity of students on the one hand, and it helps also then see what are the particular kinds of interactional struggles that get in the way that these efforts are maybe trying to overcome and then address it from that stance. I have small children and as a mother and as someone who's seeing, you know, kids engage in play and collaboration, like we know that, right? We know that we need to see these young people as human and multifaceted, but somehow this transition into disciplinary learning, there are these like boundaries and benchmarks and standards. And, you know, as a teacher, you, if you sharpen that lens and just think about moving toward those goals as the only thing that really matters in your classroom, you lose that richness of understanding those social interactions, those moments of innovation and ingenuity that allow students to move between spaces super nimbly. So I, I love that your work really foregrounds the importance of that um, as just as a person, but also as a teacher and researcher as well. In thinking about enculturating young scholars into the field of learning sciences and sort of the potential you see for the field to sort of contribute to our understanding about collaborative learning. And I want to come back to this language that's come out of the pandemic in terms of thinking about sort of learning loss, right? I think we're coming out of two or three years of having, um, you know, lives upended, right? And and a lot of the, the conversations that have been happening among policymakers, um, et cetera, have been around what has been lost during this time. Um, and what it makes me think about is how this maybe leads some to really double down on these efforts to really catch up, especially for students of color who are demonstrating you know, the most loss over these years. And so I wanted to know from your perspective, what should our focus be as learning scientists, as educational researchers, as people who support teachers in what they do? How can we think about these students and their identity development um, in the midst of this national conversation about how to catch people up? Where should we be focusing our own efforts in our work with teachers inside classrooms? I think in the case of science classrooms, we need to see students as whole persons first. Perhaps take the opportunity to provide different ways of doing science education, um, you know, um, so, uh, I don't think this is completely starting from scratch, though, in the sense that, you know, in some ways, the science education reforms already lay the groundwork for um, for doing this by prioritizing both preparing students for higher education towards science careers, as well as just promoting scientific literacy. Um, among all students, regardless of their career goals. I think we should be open to the possibility that students may bring legitimate critiques of the culture of science, and they um, might also bring critiques of the interests that are typically given the greatest platform in science classrooms. So even if you would never describe yourself as a critical science educator, a critical science education researcher, or a critical developmental psychologist, 
just even if you like, personally see nothing wrong with the culture of science, say for some reason that's where you're at, um, it still would be incredibly difficult in my view to argue against opening up that kind of dialogue in classrooms. Um, and I think it would be great to actually do it early enough that students who are genuinely interested in science careers are really forced to engage these legitimate critiques before they ever enter the STEM workforce, before they show up in these undergraduate classrooms and reproduce the same dynamics. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with um, the opportunity to do things differently in, in the wake of like all of the disruption from the pandemic. And also with, with, with your point, Carlin, about the whole person first. And the way that I think about it in terms of, you know, I've got, I've got two teens of my own who were just so profoundly affected by the pandemic and in the the work with teachers we were doing this district level professional development work like at the exact like it launched at the exact moment that the pandemic hit and so the two years we were working together was through the the pandemic and just hearing the teachers report what's going on in, in their like online classrooms and then ultimately their in-person classrooms and what I would say about the question of sort of that urgency of of learning loss is in order to be effective, we need to recognize what the most profound needs are right now. So for example, like one of the things that we hear is, you know, the students have come back to class and they are just so disruptive Uh, They're just, you know, they really need discipline. They've like lost their sense of how to behave. And we know that the pandemic was an, was a collective trauma um, for everybody and for young people. And there was a lot of isolation. And so there's coming back and there's the need for connection and for supports for connection. And there's a understandable, predictable dysregulation, you know, just from that experience And we can't be, um, you know, sort of making instructional decisions on the shoulds and what how kids should be and what should be happening. There's the truth of what is. And so if you double down on and this is just like on that behavior part, because that's like one kind of discourse that you're hearing is like they're they, you know, they're coming back to school and they don't know how to act. And you you address it like, well, I'm just going to double down on discipline and just get them, you know, to force them we are exacerbating the problem. They need care, they need connection, they need scaffolds, they need uh, grounding, right? That this is, this is what, this is predictable kind of coming out of the kind of trauma and isolation that we all went through. I think it's the same thing with this question of learning loss. Like I get the urgency, that fear of like, oh my gosh, we have so much to cover that wasn't covered. But this was like a globally shared experience. And to come into a classroom and have students who are coming in feeling disconnected, feeling um, dysregulated, having gone through this kind of experience and say, well, they should be at this kind of point in the content learning. So we're going to double down on discipline and we're going to double down on practice. And you have a student like, what do I care about this worksheet? Like, what do I care about quadratic equations right now? I am not feeling seen and heard and understood and loved and supported at all. And so I think like if we want to get to the point where we are returning to content and really getting students engaged and they're curious again and they're motivated again, then we do need to start with the fundamentals. Like they need to feel connection again. They need to feel care. 
They need to feel seen. They need to feel heard. And when we've got that in place, then we can talk about like quadratic equations, you know? And so doing it the other way around is not going to help, even if all we care about is the learning loss. Like it won't even be effective towards that goal. It really, I think, foregrounds like what is important here in my role as an educator, right? When I treat these young people as someone, as folks who've engaged, who've experienced this collective trauma, is it the quadratic equations? Is it, you know, photosynthesis, right? It kind of puts into sharp relief, like what is the work that we're doing here? We're supporting young people and becoming. And what might that look like at this particular moment? And what needs to come to the fore for us to really... um, help people process all of what they've been through. Um, And I think your work on, you know, sort of coupling, you know, ideology, ontology with the epistemic helps us understand students as people um, and helps challenge me in thinking about how I work with teachers and students as well. So thank you for that. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome. Bye. Bye. I'd love to hear what you took away from this conversation and connections that you see to your own work. Send us an email at humanslspod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at humanslspod. This podcast is co-produced by Andrew Kurzak and Monlin Monica Cope. Our work is made possible by the Learning Sciences Research Institute at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.